Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode raises perplexing and abiding questions about the role that art can play in human life, and does so through its focus on one of the most creative and confounding figures in French literature, Charles Baudelaire. Although contemporary critics railed against Baudelaire's perceived indecency, he was soon hailed for his amazing poetic talent and unique artistic vision. His eye could penetrate the surface of the impersonal and ephemeral experiences of urban life and reveal the spiritual realities beneath. Indeed, Baudelaire's art takes incredible risks, poised between idealism and realism and between beauty and the grotesque. Baudelaire's poetry seeks the fleeting meeting points between eternity and time, the human and the divine. In the rare epiphanic moments which his poetry so often takes as its theme, transcendent revelation is found in what is fleeting and ephemeral. And poetry is what gives such passing moments a fixity through which they can communicate in an abiding way their beauty and their truth. Such is the power of Baudelaire's poetry, and indeed of poetry as such. These deep themes are the ones brilliantly and beautifully explored by today's lecturer, Dr. Marie Cowthar-Dowda of Oriel College, Oxford, and whom we are proud to call a fellow of Ralston College. As we'll hear in the course of her talk today, Dr. Dowda fell in love with the poetry of Baudelaire at an early age. She moved from Morocco to Paris to study him, so she knows firsthand just how transformative one's encounter with art can really be. For me, her lecture was such an encounter, as I hope it will be for you. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. I am uh, Stephen Blackwood, and I am the president of Ralston College. It is an immense pleasure to welcome today the scholar of French literature, Dr. Marie Cowthar-Dauda. I'm going to make just a few remarks by way of introduction. It is a great honor to have Dr. Dauda here with us today. Dr. Dauda is an author and lecturer in French language and literature at the University of Oxford. She's at Oriel College. She is a she was educated in France at Henri IV and La Sorbonne in Paris. Her research focuses on the artistic representations of good and evil in periods of political and religious crisis. Her first book, L'Anti Salome, Representation de la Féminité Bienveillante au Temps de la Décadence, was published by Peter Lang in 2020. And her second book project is entitled Blessings and Curses Desperate Prayer in French Literature from Baudelaire to Bernanos. That's coming out by Garnier in the not too distant future, I hope, as eager as I am to read that book. Dr. Dauda is interested in the links between music and painting and writing, as well as the influence of the sciences on literature. She's also a translator, uh, currently working on a 
French version of Marie Corelli's Victorian Gothic bestseller, The Sorrows of Satan. Dr. Dada was born and raised in Morocco, and I want to tell you just a little bit about her biography because we're, we've been interviewing this week for the Masters in the Humanities here at Ralston College. We've had a, a humbling number of, of wonderful applicants, deep thinking and powerfully motivated young people who are really wanting to make sense of themselves and the world. And I, I mention that because Dr. Dowda is, for me, a great example of someone whose early insights and passions about the intellectual life led her into a, a really inspiring career. She moved to France from Morocco, where she was born at the age of 17, really out of passion for the not only the French language, but in particular for the poet Baudelaire. And that uh, just that one insight into her life, I think, gives you a sense of how and I want to share this, as it were, to all of our, uh, our younger applicants of how sometimes those insights you have early in life, those passions, those inclinations that maybe there's something in your longing or desire to understand, uh, how that can lead to a whole life of deepening insights and moral integrity and so on. Two of the, uh, the traits I most admire in Dr. Dowda. Um, I would, uh, just as a bit of housekeeping, I want to welcome all of you to read along to the poems today. You can see them on uh, the website. If you come to the website and look uh, up Dr. Dowda, Ralston College, Baudelaire, you'll certainly find a link to both English and French of the poems she's going to be reading. But without uh, anything further, let me welcome Dr. Marie Kouthar Dowda to this series. It's so lovely to have you here, Dr. Dowda. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Blackwood. It's such a pleasure to be here, especially to talk about uh, poetry, particularly dear to my heart, as you've said, indeed, well, sometimes one just falls in love with a work of art. And to me, Baudelaire's poetry was quite decisive as an entry into the great classics of French culture and poetry. So I will discuss two poems mainly, which are considered as Baudelaire's most famous poems. But I will start by giving a few words of introduction on Charles Baudelaire himself and his period and what makes him so special and what makes his works of art so interesting. So my title is Charles Baudelaire and the creation of the poetic self, because beyond the interest in Baudelaire as an author and as a fascinating historical figure, he also creates within his art a very interesting reflection on what it is to be within the world, what it is to be confronted to evil, to beauty and to time and loss. So here is Charles Baudelaire, who was born in 1821 and he died in 1867. To give a bit of historical background, in Baudelaire's time, well, France was far from being quiet politically. There's been a lot going on. You'd see since the end of absolute monarchy in 1789, we could count almost eight different regimes leading up to the reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III, when Baudelaire dies. So in Baudelaire's lifetime, all his generation was aware of these political complexities. So 
La Terreur in 1792 was a rather ghastly ending to all the beautiful ideas of the French Revolution because instead of the liberty and personal fulfillment that people were looking forward to, what happened was only an even more authoritarian regime, which ended in the reign of the Emperor Napoleon I, who ended up in exile, who was succeeded to by Charles X, so Charles X, who still, he was the last king to bear the title of King of France and who was deposed in 1830 and his successor, so 1830, that's what Eugène de la Croix depicts in La, la Liberté guidant le peuple, this famous painting that inspired the French icon Marianne, this young woman with a Phrygian bonnet embodying liberty bringing freedom to or everyone in the country. So the reign of Charles X ended in the reign of Louis-Philippe, King of the French, because we switched from an absolute monarchy with the Restoration to a constitutional monarchy that ended in another revolution in 1848 with the Second Republic, which led to the return of the Bonaparte on the throne of France, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, the nephew of Napoleon I, seized the power on the 2nd of December 1851. So that would be the time when Baudelaire is intellectually ripe enough to understand what is going on in his country, and his statement is quite unforgiving as he comments to Ancel in a letter, you did not see me voting. That is a commitment of mine. The 2nd of December has physically depoliticized me. So all his ideals that he could have had as a young man in 1848 collapsed in the moment he saw that everything that had been done in the name of this equalitarian republic only resulted in the return of the empire. So the commitment of politicians and writers together is something that we'd have a hard time understanding nowadays. But in 19th century, many famous politicians did in fact also write amazing foundational novels for what is understood as 19th century French literature. So Chateaubriand, one of the key figures of the Romantic movement was also a politician, and so were Benjamin Constant and Alphonse de Lamartine. So these three poets of the beginning of the 19th century created this ideal of the poet as a politician, the poet as a lawmaker, the poet as lawgiver, which will be especially embodied by Victor Hugo, who also had an amazing political career. So. Victor Hugo wrote a lot in comparison to Baudelaire. He was so famous that when he died, his body was carried directly to the Pantheon. He didn't even stop by the Père Lachaise to get a proper inhumation. He was directly carried to where France keeps the bodies of every person who had contributed highly to creating the sense of a national identity. Um, Georges Sand, too, was a key figure at that time. She wrote a lot. She loved nature. Baudelaire called her a cow. He didn't like her because she stood against the idea of original sin. So in a way, Victor Hugo and Georges Sand are the heirs of the um, Rousseauian and Voltairean ideal of the revolution, which aimed to put the individual back in the center 
of politics. So for Rousseau, for instance, the idea was that man was born free and everywhere he's in chains, meaning that once man is freed from the chains of society, he can exert his natural tendency towards goodness because for Rousseau, man is good and there is no sense of evil whatsoever that could hinder from the fulfillment of universal happiness provided individual happiness is granted. Baudelaire, him, well, he really didn't believe in this at all. Baudelaire was grieved with this idea of original sin. So when he comments on Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, he writes, Alas, even after so much progress, from promise for such a long time, there will always be enough traces of original sin to show its immemorial reality. So that's quite a harsh statement upon reading Les Miserables because Les Miserables is all about the fact that, well, Jean Valjean is not a bad person. He just became bad because of economic circumstances. And therefore, if he were born in the right circumstances, he'd never have committed any crime. So his whole story of redemption was Victor Hugo's way of showing how good man is and how hard one must fight to step away from all this evil created by society. Well, Baudelaire says, no, it's the opposite. Progress and the betterment of society will never free us from original sin. Needless to say, that didn't go down well with the people of his time, but Victor Hugo was still aiming or hoping to be friends with Baudelaire in a way. So he dedicates to Baudelaire a copy of a collection entitled Les Chansons des Rues et des Bois, Songs from Streets and Woods. And his dedication is about saving humankind. So he writes, a Monsieur Charles Baudelaire to Mr. Charles Baudelaire, Jungamus Dextras, let's unite our right hands, signed Victor Hugo. And in this collection, there is a poem with some lines that Baudelaire would have strongly disapproved of. I only believe in the divine right of the heart of the playful child of frank laughter and jolly wine. In French, je ne crois qu'au droit divin du cœur de l'enfant qui joue du franc rire et du bon vin. For Baudelaire, well, the heart is grieved with original sin, children are cruel, laughter is mean, and wine only leads people to murder. So they were not quite on the same page as far as this is concerned. And Baudelaire writes to Manet, the painter Manet, commenting on this dedication that Victor Hugo wrote on his copy of Les Chansons des Rues et des Bois. I know what Victor Hugo's Latin implies. It also implies, let us join our hands to save humanity, but I don't give a damn about humanity. And he did not realize it. So Baudelaire stands at odds with the main poetic and political figure of his time. One must understand that for Baudelaire's generation, everyone would have hoped to be as famous and as influential as Victor Hugo. But Baudelaire stays firm on his idea that, well, humanity is not free from original sin and will not be freed from it through progress. In a way, Baudelaire is quite close to the 
Old Testament idea that no man is entirely just. And we see in the Psalm, the line, if thou, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And Baudelaire comments in a project of preface to his collection, Les Fleurs du Mal, nous sommes tous pendus ou pendables. All of us are either hanged or hangable. So it's a rather unforgiving judgment on mankind in general. Baudelaire was strongly influenced by Blaise Pascal, who saw that humanity was burdened with this feeling of void, this vacuum that only God can fill. So Pascal was a physicist, and his experiments on physics strangely mirror what he thought of God. So for, in Pascal's system, man bears a gouffre, a pit, that only divinity itself can fill. And Baudelaire struggles with this idea because what he sees around him is that, well, there isn't much room for God anywhere. And it leads him to a rather dark judgment about his generation. So about Baudelaire's philosophical influence, he mentions that Joseph de Maistre and Edgar Poe taught him how to reason. De Maistre et Edgar Poe m'ont appris à raisonner. Joseph de Maistre was a politician and a theoretician of political providence and sacrifice. De Maistre mainly wrote about the idea of redemption through blood, namely that there is no salvation without sacrifice, and he saw it in a sort of political providential way, which is to say that even the gruesome things of history, wars and murders and all that take place within a broader providence that helps understand the place of God in the course of history. And as far as Edgar Allan Poe is concerned, he was a theoretician of life, death, death, life and everything in between. You'd probably have heard of his tales that have a lot to do with the afterlife, communicating with the afterlife, uh, ghosts and apparitions from the other world. But for Baudelaire, he was also especially a key figure in the continuity of Plato's understanding of the world as giving an idea of something better. So Edgar Allan Poe can definitely be seen as the main Neoplatonist of his generation. And Baudelaire follows in his footsteps with this idea that the world is fallen, that we can only get a distant glimpse of the ideal we're called to. And obviously this stands at odds with what someone like Victor Hugo could defend. So in a short story called The Imp of the Perverse, Edgar Allan Poe writes through its promptings, let's say the promptings of the imp of the perverse, we act for the reason that we should not, which is to say that in, well, in what St. Paul writes in the Epistle to the Romans, the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would not do, I do. So we're aggrieved with this incapacity of doing what we know is good for us. So that's what Edgar Poe calls the perverse. And it's a key idea in the way Baudelaire, as we'll see, understands the problem of evil. Baudelaire writes in L'Art Romantique that evil is done effortlessly, naturally, as though fatally, and goodness is always the product of some art. Le mal se fait sans effort, naturellement, par fatalité. Le bien est toujours le produit d'un art. Which means that 
although we're confronted with evil in a natural way, goodness requires a sense of artistry, a sense of crossfulness that it requires effort. It does not happen naturally as Rousseau or Hugo would say. And against the Rousseauian ideal that uh, nature will bring us everything good and we just have to follow nature and everything will be fine, Baudelaire writes to Alphonse Touzenel, the whole nature partakes of original sin. La nature entière participe du péché originel. It's not to say that Baudelaire is all doom and gloom. There is a tension in his writing between this deep understanding of the place of evil, the impossibility of escaping evil, and yet a calling to something higher, deeper and better. So he writes in Mon Coeur Mise à Nu, which are autobiographical notes, as a very young child, I felt deep within my, within my heart the contradictory sentiments, horror of life and the ecstasy of life. Tout enfant, j'ai senti dans mon cœur deux sentiments contradictoires, l'horreur de la vie et l'extase de la vie. That's what the painter Carlos Schwab illustrated in a painting called Spline Ideal in 1907. So the title is a direct allusion to a section in Baudelaire's main collection of poems, Les Fleurs du Mal. The main section in it, and probably the most famous, is called Spleen et Ideal. You notice that these two words express the same contradiction as les fleurs du mal, the flowers of evil. Spleen would be this oozing of bile, this uh, feeling of resentment, but also dissatisfaction and deep melancholy. And at the same time, ideal, this tension towards something that is by definition unattainable. So Baudelaire's main collection published in his lifetime is Les Fleurs du Mal. Here you can see the copy of the first edition with Baudelaire's edits and all the notes he made to his publisher. Um, this collection has a rather interesting story. So it was published in 1857 after years of writing on Baudelaire's behalf. Baudelaire was not a prolific author like Victor Hugo. So it's, well, this collection stands as a sort of work of art in and of itself because of how scarce the poems are. It holds 150 poems that are set in different sections. But when it was published in 1857, it automatically called lawsuits. So the collection was censored for outrage to religious morals and outrage to public morals. So it would almost be the equivalent of what Oscar Wilde was accused of, of gross indecency, except that this would be strictly literary. So the um, idea of attempting to religious morality was because of a section called Revolt, Revolt, where Baudelaire expresses the revolt of the burdened self against a, an unwilling providence. So this charge was dropped after the trial, but the charge of offencing against public morality was kept because of some poems that had to do with themes such as murder, suicide, lesbianism, and everything that, let's say, the proper, very conservative early Second Empire was trying to build upon. So Baudelaire's collection somehow made the uh, was used as a good way to claim some sense of public morality by a regime that tried to gain this 
conservative label that was in a way usurped from the righteous heirs of the throne of France. So after the publication of Les Fleurs du Mal, which was republished in a censored version in 1861, and then again in 1868 when Baudelaire died, but it's only in 1948 that we got a complete collection with the censored poems that allowed to see the complexity of the work and that in a way the poems that scandalized this society were there to give a broad picture of the human condition, that evil is unavoidable, but in the collection they also come along with beautiful poems about the ideal. And this is something that had been completely overlooked during the trial. So Baudelaire died in 1867 in complete misery. He never quite managed to write the splendid work of art he was dreaming of. So he um, was mainly famous when he died as an art critic rather than as a poet. And it's only after he died and after many friends published their memories of him that his memory started getting a bit rehabilitated. So the two poems I'd like to look at were added to the 1868 collection and were probably written in 1861. So A une passante is, um, is a poem that looks like a sonnet, but it is not a sonnet. So I will first read it in French and then we'll look at some elements of French metrics and French poetry. And the other poem that I would like to look at is Recueillement, which gives a dazzling description of the setting sun while the poet describes his pain being soothed by the ambient beauty. So Un Passant is about an encounter in a noisy street. And here's how it goes in French. La rue assourdissante autour de moi hurlait. Longue, mince, en grand deuil, douleur majestueuse, une femme passa, d'une main fastueuse, soulevant, balançant le feston et l'ourlet. Agile et noble, avec sa jambe de statue, moi, je buvais, crispé comme un extravagant, dans son œil, ciel livide où germe l'ouragan, la douceur qui fascine et le plaisir qui tue. Un éclair, puis la nuit, fugitive beauté, dont le regard m'a fait soudainement renaître, ne te verrai-je plus que dans l'éternité Ailleurs, bien loin d'ici, trop tard, jamais peut-être. Car j'ignore où tu fuis, tu ne sais où je vais. Ô toi que j'eusse aimé, ô toi qui le savais. So I've made an attempt as a translation. One of the ordeals in translating piece of poetry is that of course you lose the rhythm, of course you lose the sound of the words. And what I'm going for here is just raw meaning so that we could follow what is going on in this poem together. The deafening street around me howled. Tall, slender, in mourning, majestic pain, a woman walked by with a splendid hand, lifting, swinging the festoon and the hem. Agile and noble with her statuesque leg, I was drinking like one entranced in her livid eye where the tempest emerged, the fascinating softness and the killing pleasure. Lightning, then the night, fugitive beauty, whose gaze suddenly brought me back to life. Shall I only see you again in the eternity? Elsewhere, far away from here, too late, never perhaps, for I know not where you flee, you don't know where I go. 
Oh, you who might have loved, oh, you who knew it. So the sort of line chosen by Baudelaire for this poem is the French Alexandrin, which would be the cultural equivalent of an iambic pentameter when someone needs to write something in serious French verse. The standard format is the Alexandrin. The Alexandrin is structured in two parts, two hemistiches of six syllables each. So French poetry doesn't work by meters, by feet. It works with syllables and it is counted for the Alexandrin as six and six that can be split later in less strict ways. But la rue assourdissante autour de moi hurlait would be scanned in un, deux, un, deux, trois, quatre. La rue assourdissante, then stop, autour de moi hurlait. So you'd see from the start how Baudelaire plays around this rule of the split in the middle of the line. So for instance, you'd have Agile et noble avec sa jambe de statue, it creates a sort of suspension, which we can't quite have with the English rhythm because it, it's meant to trip the reader over, just like the following line, moi je buvais crispé comme un extravagant. And all of these create a sense of imbalance and expectation. But what is going on here is that the poet describes a scene, well, an urban scene taking place in the city where in a very noisy street, he walks by a woman and they exchange a glance that strikes him as though it were by lightning. And it gives the poetic eye here, this sense of temporary, higher, denser existence. So he is set aside from the rest of the world with this la rue assourdissante autour de moi hurlait. So of course, what is howling hurlait here is not the street in itself, but what happens in the street, you must imagine people walking by the carriages, all the noise of a busy city, mid 19th century Paris. But then there is this apparition of this tall woman wearing mourning dress in majestic pain. And she is described as though it were by glimpses. What we see of her is a hand, une main, carrying the, the feston et l'ourlet. So we, we see a glimpse of the dress she's wearing. We see her statuesque leg and then her eye. And that's it. We don't know who she is, as the poet says. J'ignore où tu fuis, tu ne sais où je vais. They don't know anything about each other. But this idea of seizing a fleeting instance of beauty, this fleeting encounter matches what Baudelaire hopes for, even when he describes painting and pictorial art. So this poem reminds of Constantin Guisse. So Constantin Guisse was famous for his watercolors that were like sketches. It would be the uh, equivalent of an instant photograph, but he did it in this way, as you can see with the colors, with the lines. We don't really see the features, but we see the movement. And that's what Baudelaire is interested in, in Aune Passante. It's about seizing the short movement of this encounter. And I hope I'm not going to break any hearts here, but maybe this encounter never actually happened. Maybe this woman doesn't even exist, but this possibility, at least this 
possibility of beauty opened by the fleeting encounter with someone is at the core of the poem. So as we'll see here, if you see how the pronouns work, she is une femme at the beginning, the poet is just moi. And then in the last section of the poem, in the season, ne te verrai-je plus que dans l'éternité, all of a sudden she becomes a you. And because she becomes a you, it creates this possibility of an encounter, a dialogue where the I suddenly takes meaning too. He is tasting from her eye, la douceur qui fascine et le plaisir qui tue. So here too, we see Baudelaire's sense of the oxymoron, la douceur qui fascine, fascinating softness and killing pleasure. And then towards the end of the poem, car j'ignore où tu fuis, tu ne sais où je vais, au toi que je s'aimais, au toi qui le savais. We can note the double parallelisms as indicated by the middle, uh, Sejura of the hemistich, both parts respond to each other. J'ignore où tu suis, tu ne sais où je vais. The um, pronouns mirror each other. And even though the encounter is done and gone, there is something that has happened there. There is a reflection of the poet into someone else. This creation of the poetic self happens through the encounter with the other. So this I should not be limited to Baudelaire himself, but I guess it speaks to anyone and any reader of this poem because we sense this what might have been, this possibility of what could have been if time was not always fleeting away, taking away any cherished moment and forcing us to confront the, the finiteness of life. And about the structure of the poem, so it is also a glimpse on a short story that Petrus Borel collected in the, the collection Champavert. So Petrus Borel was one of the writers that Baudelaire admired and considered one of the key figures of freneticism. So Petrus Borel describes this potentiality of the encounter and how devastating it is that this encounter would lead to nothing. So I'm going to read the translation, then the French. One throws a look at her, one receives a wink in exchange, that is love already, just enough time to sigh, the apparition has vanished, and one remains aghast, dumbfound, under the shock. For me, this thought that one would never see again the blinding lightning that two lives meant to be happy together now and in eternity shall forever be parted and shall crawl in sorrow without ever finding back the soul that matches theirs to me this thought is deeply painful and in reading the french you notice that some of the key words in the poem are also already present in that this text by petrus borel on lui a jeté un regard, on a reçu une oeillade, c'est déjà de l'amour, le temps de pousser un soupir, l'apparition s'est éteinte, et l'on reste atterré, anéanti par la commotion. Pour moi, cette pensée qu'on ne reverra jamais cet éclair qui nous a éblouis, 
que de deux existences faites pour être heureuses ensemble en cette vie et dans l'éternité sont à jamais écartées et se traîneront malheureusement sans plus jamais retrouver l'âme qui leur a gré, pour moi, cette pensée est profondément douloureuse. So, Baudelaire takes this idea of the grief of the encounter that never happened, the missed encounter, and turns it into something quite different through his poetic art. Because what is going on here is that in spite of the separation, like I said, well, the encounter has happened and the moment of poetic creation did occur. So this poem looks like a sonnet. It is structured like a sonnet with the two first stanzas of four lines and then a last stanza of six lines separated by a pagination mark. But when you look at it closely in the way the rhymes work, it's not a sonnet. So we've noticed that Baudelaire plays with the middle section of the Alexandrin to create this sense of tripping over, the sense of suspension, but he also plays with the rhyme structures. If you look at the end, a classical sonnet would have had, let's say, ABBA, ABBA rhymes, and more importantly, in the final section in the Cézanne, you'd have had CCD, EED, or EDE, here the rhyme pattern is completely rehashed into having a b b a c d d e e f e f e e so in the way this works in the last lines of the poem what happens is that we have the suspension car j'ignore où tu fuis tu ne sais où je vais and then the echo au toi que j'eusse aimé au toi qui le savais so even though the encounter is missed even though nothing happened after that the poem has been created and we are still wondering about this shock of the possibility of something something that might happen which is expressed by these ideas of light and darkness un éclair puis la nuit fugitive beauté dont le regard m'a fait soudainement renaître so he says, dont le regard m'a fait soudainement renaître. So in her gaze, he suddenly found back his life. He is born again. So even though the encounter ended in separation, for this moment, the poetic eye was living at a higher rate. The poetic figure is living again as though this encounter was the spark required to create a work of art that we're still looking at today. So this leads to thinking about the, the sense of wonder that Baudelaire cultivates. Although he's been labeled as an accursed poet, there's a sense of wonder in what is going on in this poem and in many others. So I'm quoting Michael Edwards' definition of l'émerveillement, wonder, so uh, Michael Edwards wrote that in French, but I took the liberty of translating it back into English. So it is certain that wonder, if caused by the conviction that man is good and that he constitutes an endless stock of possibilities, is nothing but a dangerous enchantment. But real wonder is not born in front of the infinite of man, but in front of the inexhaustible reality. 
And I think this definition works quite well with the sort of wonder that Baudelaire creates through A Une Passante. So the sense of amazement that is created through Baudelaire's poetry doesn't come, let's say, from a Rousseauvian delusion that everything is right with the world. It comes from the fact that reality is heavy with potentiality. So it's this stock of possibles that Michael Edwards mentions. So this encounter is not important because of the future it could bring, but because of the future that might have happened. It is this field of what could have happened between two people meeting, realizing that they're meant for one another, and then moving on. So that gives a sense of inexhaustible reality. And the second poem I wanted to look at was added to the latest edition of Les Fleurs du Mal, so Recueillement. The title in and of itself is interesting because Recueillement is about quietness. You'd say in French, se recueillir, when you take a quiet time to commemorate something. So there's a vague sense of grieving, but there's also something extremely metapoetic about this word because the recueillement, well, recueil is the French for collection, a collection of poems, but it also has this idea of cueillir, so gathering. And we've seen that there is this idea of flowers entitled Les Fleurs du Mal. In the title of the collection, you have Les Fleurs du Mal with this double meaning of mal that can be at once pain, so physical pain, and also evil. And in this poem, the poet addresses his pain. Many translators went for a more emotional translation of pain, translating it as grief or sorrow. I think it might be interesting to keep just pain into English because, well, you can have emotional pain as well as physical pain. And it brings back this ambiguity that we have with douleur. So Baudelaire knew something about physical pain. We'll go back to that later. But when he writes this recueillement poem, it's in a way quite odd in Baudelaire's style because it is entirely wired towards the peace that can happen during the sunset, which is a theme that he'll explore in a collection of prose poems later, but I'll go back to that. So here we have the poet stepping aside from the crowd and entertaining his pain, soothing his pain by showing her a beautiful landscape of the setting sun over the Parisian river Lassen. So that's what it could have looked like. So now that you have the image in mind, we can have a look at the poem itself. Sois sage, ô oh, ma douleur, et tiens-toi plus tranquille. Tu réclamais le soir, il descend, le voici. Une atmosphère obscure enveloppe la ville, aux uns portant la paix, aux autres le souci. Pendant que des mortels, la multitude ville, sous le fouet du plaisir, ce bourreau sans merci, va cueillir des remords dans la fête servile, Ma douleur, donne-moi la main, viens par ici, loin d'eux, vois se pencher les défuntes années, sur les balcons du ciel, en robe surannée, surgir du fond des eaux le regret souriant, le soleil moribond s'endormir sous une arche, et comme un long linceul traînant à l'orient, entend ma chair, entend la douce nuit qui marche. So, an attempted translation could be, Be still, O oh my pain, and hold your peace. 
You were yearning for evening. Here he is coming down. A dark atmosphere enshrouds the town to some bearing peace and to some others worry. While the vile crowd of the mortals under pleasure's whip, this merciless executioner goes gleaning remorse in the slavish feast. My pain, give me your hand, come over here, away from them. See the deceased years lean from the sky's balconies in old fashioned robes, rising from the depth of waters, smiling regret, the dying sun falling asleep under an arch. And like a long shroud lingering over the east, hear my dear, hear the soft night walking. So Baudelaire usually links the setting sun to a moment of recollection, but it is mainly sad or sorrowful or even full of anxiety. So in uh, there are two poems entitled Le Crépuscule du Soir, Evening Twilight, one in Les Fleurs du Mal and one in Le Spleen de Paris, Baudelaire's collection of prose poems. And in these poems, he explores the setting sun in a much harsher way. But here, what is going on is the creation of a moment of peace. And what is fascinating is that the poet addresses part of himself, mad douleur, telling her to, she is personified as feminine figure, and he draws her away from the crowd in this typical romantic posture of, well, I am set apart from the word. So René Girard uh, borrows the definition of romanticism from Dostoevsky's The Underground, I am alone and they are a multitude. And that's what's going on here in Recueillement, but in a much more pleasant way, because the poetic eye in this poem is able to move away from the crowd and to sever himself from what the crowd is doing. So the first stanza is about the coming down of the evening and what while a dark atmosphere rises around the city. And to some, this coming of the evening brings peace and to others, it brings something much harsher. And that's what the second stanza is exploring. So we see the multitude of the mortals, the multitude of this crowd running under the whip of pleasure, this merciless executioner. So the figure of the executioner is very present in Baudelaire's poetry. Um, he sees people as their own executioners. The, he calls that le bourreau de soi-même, and he describes that in the poem Les Hautons which is literally the self-slaughtering one. But here it is pleasure that is being an executioner, whipping the crowd as though they were cattle, pushing them towards a field of remorse, so vacuillir des remords dans la fête servile. So they go to gather remorse. And in the meantime, the poet is leading his pain away. There is something quite spectacular going on here. Ma douleur, donne-moi la main, viens par ici, loin d'eux. Ideally, each stanza and even each line should be an independent linguistic entity. So the syntax should not be 
broken from one part of the poem to the from one part of the line to another line and here Baudelaire goes ahead and spreads the meaning over the two halves of the poem so towards the end of the stanza you have this viens par ici and then loin de so it's a rejet and we'd see this far away from them being embodied visually through the way the poem is structured. And once this separation is done, the spectacle of the setting sun unfolds in such a way that the personifications and the allegories of the first part suddenly make even more sense. We've seen that pain is personified, evening is personified too. You'd have pleasure holding his whip turned into an allegory. But here, the last six lines of this sonnet are all about the allegory of the setting sun. Vois se pencher les défuntes années. Look at the, so what is leaning over the balconies of the sky are the years gone by. And the, their garments are what creates these lights and shadows that we see around here. And rising from the water we see regret so in the second stanza we had remorse and here we have regret and both words have a very strong connection to time it's about rewriting time it's about living time again if i could turn back the hands of time but here regret is smiling rising from the water as though it was recovered as though there was a possibility of at least looking back at what might have been so a good way to distinguish remorse from regret is that remorse is about the things done which should not have been done and regret is about the things that should have been done and are not done so rising from the water there is a glimpse over what we mentioned already in un passant this possibility of looking at something else looking at what time did not altogether remove and the sun himself is described as moribond so the dying setting sun is falling asleep under an arch and the last cell to the shroud is also linked to death so we do have a lexical field of death and mourning but in a very tender way because look at what is coming here, entend ma chère, entend la douce nuit qui marche, night is coming over. It is as though the end of time was not met with the anxiety that we can see in some of Baudelaire's other poems like L'Horloge or La Chambre Double. Here, la nuit brings softness and finally some sort of closure and peaceful ending. And in terms of poetic bravado here, Entends ma chère, entends la douce nuit qui marche, does look like a perfect Alexandrin, but it is also a romantic line as Victor Hugo used to write them. So Victor Hugo was fighting against the tyranny of the Alexandrin, and he thought that we could split the Alexandrin in another way in three different sections rather than two sections. And what Baudelaire does here is that he writes a line that can be read simultaneously as perfectly obedient to the classical tradition of the Alexandrin split in 
six syllables and six syllables, but also can be read in four, then four, then four, and it gives a completely different rhythm. And look at how it goes. The first one would be Entends ma chère, entends la douce nuit qui marche. And the second option would be Entends ma chère, entends la douce nuit qui marche. So without breaking the rule of the Alexandrin, Baudelaire gives another possibility of reading it. So without breaking up with the poetic tradition, he brings this possibility of reading it in a way that encapsulates an even more, well, slow rhythm, something that mimics, so to speak, the slow steps of night creeping in. But this is not just about Baudelaire's creativity, uh, just as we've seen that Aune Passant echoes Petrus Borel in Recueillement, there are some echoes of Longfellow, um, echoes of Voices of the Nice, for instance, where we have this idea of look then into thine eye, heart and write, yes, into life's deep stream, all forms of sorrow and delight and sullen voices of the night that can soothe thee or affright, be these henceforth thy theme. So it's as though Baudelaire takes Longfellow's recommendation as an order. He fulfills this idea of listening to the voices of the night and taking them as an inspiration. And Baudelaire well, used to translate Longfellow, not, not just Edgar Poe, and him to the night can also be guessed through the uh, the structure of recueillement with this separation between the crowd and sadness and then all of a sudden this idea of peace and wholeness when we have this stanza i felt her presence by its spell of might stupor me from above the calm majestic presence of the night as of the one I love. So here we see where Baudelaire could have gotten this idea of night personified into this allegory of the figure bringing peace, the figure bringing wholeness and resilience. So the Romantic tradition was mainly about looking at landscapes and saying, oh, this landscape is just about my feelings. So it's what is called in French, le paysage est Adam. It's something that Benjamin Constant or Lamartine would do all the time. And Baudelaire reverses this tradition by showing that here it is the landscape influencing him. And it's something that he develops in a prose poem published in Le Spleen de Paris, his posthumous collection of prose poems, uh, all these things that say things of nature think through me, or I think through them, as in the great fancy, the self is soon lost. And now the depth of the sky dismays me, and its limpidity exasperates me. The insensibility of the sea, the immutability of the landscape revolts me. Ah, shall one eternally suffer or eternally run away from beauty? Nature, pitiless enchantress, ever victorious rival, leave me, tempt my desires and my pride no more. The contemplation of beauty is a duel where the artist screams with terror before being vanquished. So Baudelaire 
is perfectly aware that there are things in nature that defy art. There are things that cannot be grasped, but one should still try. And in a way, the recueillement embodies this moment where the silence that ends after the poem marks not the triumph of the landscape, but just a peaceful solution of the tension between seeing something beautiful and wanting to emulate it. So instead of fighting against it or fighting to do something just as good, Baudelaire sketches this possibility of welcoming nature and whatever surrounds the onlooker within the self in a way that is not destructive. And this poem is also, well, it stands aside because, as I mentioned, most of Baudelaire's poetry expresses a struggle against time. But here, time and the coming of the night brings peace. Just to give you a contrast, in La Chambre Double, time is much less friendly. It does appear like a, an executioner. Oui, le temps règne, il a repris sa brutale dictature et il me pousse comme si j'étais un bœuf avec son double aiguillon. Et eu donc bourrique, su donc esclave, vit donc damné. Yes, time reigns, it has reclaimed its brutal dictatorship and it pushes me as if I were an ox with its double goad. Gi up there, donkey, sweat, slave, live ye damned. So that's what time usually looks like in Baudelaire. And all of a sudden we have this sonnet that is about recollecting time. It is about regaining one's presence in time, accepting the end of the day as a moment where grief and pain can finally subside towards something else. So it's about accepting a form of cyclicity without knowing what should come afterwards. And we've mentioned Baudelaire's struggle against the uh, over-positive attitude of Rousseau's trust in progress. Baudelaire, on the contrary, trusts in providence, even though providence has been in many ways horrid to him. And the fact that he ended his life in misery is almost the, the smallest one of his pains because he also finished his days paralyzed and mute, unable to write, nor to say anything else than crénon, this, uh, it's, it's a swear word that can also sound like a prayer in a way, paradoxically, because crénon is a contraction of sacré nom de Dieu, holy name of God, and it's all what Baudelaire could say during the last days of his life after he's been struck, well, he, he got a seizure while visiting the church Saint-Roch in Namur, in, in Belgium. So one of the reasons why Baudelaire is still fascinating is that his life shows the struggle that he was dealing with in his poetry. Of course, we are called to separate the writer from his work, but in many ways, Baudelaire's use of his own life, of his own experience of pain, can still speak to readers nowadays. So. Um, in Le Spleen de Paris, for instance, he describes how people can respond differently to this prompting of the oppressive end of the day that things have, have 
come to an end and he sees it as a refreshing darkness. And uh, I would invite you to have a look at Le Crépuscule du Soir to see how he describes the coming of the night as a garment, uh, a dress over a skirt shimmering through. So it's, it's really about having the capacity of looking at a landscape of understanding what could be made of it artistically. So Baudelaire's gaze on nature enables him to turn a setting sun into an experience that any of us can live, just like his gaze on a potential passerby in the city turns the encounter into an experience of grief and loss, but also of recovered unity. So Michael Edwards wrote that the dead end is the ultimate place of salvation. And in a way, the end of the day, the day as a dead end is Baudelaire's ultimate place of salvation because time does come to an end. There is an end to the day, no matter how grieved it has been with the knowledge of evil, with the perception that one can never be as good as one would have been. But this dead end, this knowledge that there is an end to the day or to human life leads to accepting salvation, leads to accepting this potentiality. There is something else to which the, the tortured poetic self is called. So there is this idea of light and darkness that we've seen both in A Une Passante and in Recueillement. Vladimir Jankelevich, whose philosophy was strongly influenced by Baudelaire, wrote that um, there is something similar between the obscurity and the blinding light. So Jankelevich wrote, to say that God is obscure or to say that his light is incandescent, dazzling, blinding, so much so that it can seem invisible, is one and the same thing. Twilight, which is a synthesis of day and night, can be more evocative than the brightness of noon. The ambiguity of a God that is not hidden, as according to Isaiah, but as in Pascal, half hidden, reveals itself to us in a glimpse in the penumbra of half-light. And I think that is the sort of hint towards a presence, a divine benevolence that Baudelaire is sketching through this twilight where the night shall be bringing peace and consolation. So uh, Michael Edwards commented uh, about this presence of God in poetry, une présence divine dont l'autorité n'a besoin de rien pour se faire sentir, a divine presence whose authority needs nothing to make itself perceptible, as though some poems did not need to talk explicitly about God, like in Recueillement, we don't have any mention of God or anything divine, but we still sense some idea of eternity, some idea of peace and all these notions that are either in a platonic or in a Christian way understood as being the ideal towards which we tend. And Carlos Schwab, who illustrated Les Fleurs du Mal, uses this twilight in between orangey, dusky light to illustrate the les noces du poète avec la muse ou l'idéal, so the wedding of the poet and his muse also called L'Ideal. So it's part of a private collection and it shows this union between 
the poet in this state of original innocence and nakedness being taken above by a feminine redeeming figure clad in white with angel wings. And I think this illustration from someone who was as familiar as Carlos Schwab was with Baudelaire's work could be a perfect illustration for Recueillement and the, the robed figure of the night carrying away the sorrowful poet towards the ideal that he craves. So as a conclusion, well, Baudelaire led to a lot of writings and rewritings. Most of the time, people remember him as the poet Maudit, the accursed poet. So I've shown you the uh, beautiful, peaceful illustrations that Carlos Schwab entitled Linos du Poète avec la Muse. Here we have other illustrations by Carlos Schwab for Les Fleurs du Mal, where we see much more of this tension, this knowledge of evil and this necessity, so to speak, to face the evil as being entirely part of the human condition. Carlos Schwab also painted this plein ideal that we've seen earlier. And for the following generation, the generation of Carlos Schwab, but also of Verlaine, and Léon Blois, and much later, François Mauriac and Bernanos, Baudelaire is a visionary, as uh, Arthur Rimbaud says. So another brief encounter that happens not in a verse poem, but in a prose poem in Mademoiselle Bistouri, is about the uh, encounter of the narrator and a woman who has an obsession for surgeons. So he meets her in the street, she follows him, urging him to tell him where he operates because she is obsessed with this idea of the surgeon who's allowed to make blood flow so a sort of modern legitimate executioner and the speaker forces her to disclose where this obsession came from and she cannot she she it's a sort of uh, pre-freudian psychoanalysis where she is unable to express that but after this encounter the speaker utters this astonishingly beautiful prayer that was born from this encounter. What strange things can be found in a large city when one can walk around and behold. Life is teeming with innocent monsters. Lord my God, thee the creator, thee the master, thee who has created law and liberty, thee the sovereign that doth not interfere, thee the judge that pardoneth, thee who are full of motives and causes, and who perhaps have planted a taste of horror in my mind in order to convert me, to convert my soul as the recovery at the tip of a blade. Lord, have pity, have pity on madmen and mad women. O creator, could monsters exist in the eye of him who alone knows why they exist, how they are made, and how they need not have been made? So, Baudelaire was, needless to say, extremely influential to the following generation of poets you have here in reading order. Verlaine, Rimbaud, Oscar Wilde, Jean Laurent, Stéphane Mallarmé and T.S. Eliot. But he was also influential, as I said, to the following generation of um, Catholic writers who were involved in politics, mainly François Mauriac and Georges Bernanos. So François Mauriac used that ending of Mademoiselle Bistouri, which I just read as the opening epigraph to Thérèse Desquerous. So Thérèse Desquerous is 
in a way, a Baudelairean heroine. And Baudelaire still haunts pop culture as his songs were put to music not only by his contemporaries like Philippe Guilladon or Debussy, but also um, more modernly, Mylène Farmer, the French pop rock band Little Nemo, the Finnish band uh, Him, whose singer Vilvalo is at the end, the third one on top, by The Cure and by Marc Seberg, another French pop band. And there is a project going on at the moment, which is about collecting all the references to Baudelaire, either in pop music or in alternative creation. Thank you very much. My goodness, Dr. Dada, what an absolutely masterful lecture. That was an enormous pleasure. I wanted it not to end for the way in which your, your lecture itself was bringing into presence the very themes that uh, you were discussing. There are a number of things that I would like to uh, pick up in our uh, conversation before I, I open up into up, up into questions of which there are many, and I should uh, quickly say to our audience that you are encouraged to send in a question through the Q&A. Uh, don't use the chat, but go right to the Q&A, and uh, Marie and I will get to as many of those as we can. Um, but uh, I'd like to start out our conversation by returning to just a, a few of the themes that you've so very beautifully brought uh, brought to mind and and beginning first with the first of the two poems, uh, At une passante, uh, I want to, uh, to trace a few themes. And, and the first is the, is the relation between uh, time and eternity. You, you had just uh, touched on this. Uh, the poem begins, of course, in the, in the busyness of the street, uh, La Rue Assourdissante. Uh, the noise of the world, uh, the passage of time, uh, but then it, it, it concludes having been mediated by this encounter with a kind of um, discussion or at least uh, allusion to, uh, to eternity or to a kind of stability. And uh, I wanted to ask you about how, whether you think the poem itself brings that redemptive awareness, let's say, uh, about. Uh, there's a sense in which the the woman pierces that flow of time, this vision of the woman pierces the flow of time uh, on the busy street and leads to this what is called a rebirth. And in a sense, it seems to me that's what the, the poem itself is doing for us as the readers uh, in the middle of our, you know, busy days wherever we are. As we devote ourselves to the poem, it becomes something of that mediating encounter itself. And do you think that that line of thinking is, is right? Is that how Baudelaire understood it? Uh, how do you understand this, this question of time and eternity in Baudelaire? Absolutely. So um, I will go back to what you were saying about the encounter with the woman. It's a recurring theme in, I'd say, all of 19th century, that the encounter with a feminine, vaguely robed figure is the triggering moment where there is an understanding, you know, one of these moments of verticality, a transcendent moment, literally, where one second is worth a lifetime. And that's what the encounter with the woman means. And uh, I know there's a lot of bad press currently about 19th century writers being awfully misogynists and uh, seeing women as mere props for the male narrative. But what is going on 
here within the encounter with the woman is exactly the same in novels written by women or poems written by women where femininity represents this otherness this alterity that brings the self out of the usual humdrum to address the fact that we have a limited time on earth we won't live forever and there are some moments that are worth a lifetime and that's what the uh, love encounter means so the fact that it was already present in 1830 with petrus borel that we have a lot of that going on with the symbolist moment shows that we mediate our understanding of time with these encounters because uh well i guess we could square bergson so bergson has this idea that time is matter of relativity there is my experience of time that can make a day seem like an hour the limit of that is the confrontation with reality because in the end of the day a day is a day but encountering someone leads to this crossing of temporalities it's as though well two bergsonian temporalities brought together were meant to lead to something immense and infinite because there would be this understanding that these two people have two different tracks that nothing is going to bring them together again but all that they have is this second and therefore in their shared life this second is the eternity that they have so the love encounter in a very popular romantic way means that you know when when you have a, a rom-com and the first encounter and they walk by each other they look at each other and they know he knows she's the one and she knows he's the one and you're going to have 90 minutes of soapy drama for it to unfold but all had already been decided in this split second encounter where they both accept that this second is worth the rest of their lives and perhaps eternity Thank you, Dr. Dowd. I, I want to stay with this poem for a moment, and uh, I'm just so powerfully moved by the... I have, I'm a, a ashamed, but uh, in, in a way to admit that I had never read Baudelaire until I began to prepare for your lecture today, and what a, uh, what a revelation it is. The power and beauty of this poetry is simply overwhelming to me. And so I want to ask you uh, first about the beauty of the language itself uh, and what what effect, what work uh, that the beauty of the language is doing um, in the work of art? Well, a striking thing in this poem is the simplicity and clarity of, of the language. So I guess it's an ideal poem for people who start learning French because, as you've said, it's possible to get a sense of it quite early on. Um, but it's also the way these very simple words are brought together to create extremely powerful images. So I'm thinking of the second stanza with this idea of drinking with this idea of crispation, like an extravagance, so like, as though he was getting mad in her eye, her eye being like a livid sky where the hurricane is about to start fascinating sweetness and killing pleasure. There is so much going on. There's so much to unpack in the way these words affect each other. So her eye suddenly becomes a river, a fountain. It brings this idea of tears, this idea of suppressed emotions. And we, we've seen that she's mourning. So 
all these tiny glimpses, as we've seen with the Constantin sketches, we, we only have tiny glimpses with very simple words, and then it is left to the reader to imagine what is going on there. And the beauty of it is that, of course, we'll all read it differently. And I'm amazed at the amount of um, scholarly debate about Baudelaire. Is he a Catholic? Is he mocking romanticism? Is he a genuine romantic who just tries to make his art more modern? What's his connection to modernity? So he still fascinates because, well, first, he didn't write that much. We have the 150 poems of Les Fleurs du Mal and then the very short prose poem collections and then art criticism. Uh, so it's quite easy to compare him to Victor Hugo, who wrote very long poems, many theater plays, very long novels. With Baudelaire, it's very short, very dense, and always open to debate and interpretation. Yeah, I'm just uh, so, uh, I'm really just overwhelmed at the beauty of these poems as, as aesthetic objects. But of course, they're not merely aesthetic objects. They're carrying this extremely rich and powerfully thought through, as it were, content. Um, I have many other questions I want to ask, and one theme in particular I want to return to later on, but I'm, I'm keen to open the floor up to a number of uh, there's a large number of wonderful questions here. So uh, thank you everyone for sending those in. I will send as many of these as I can to Dr. Dowda here in the next uh, few minutes. But there's a couple of questions that are, are curious to ask you, Dr. Dowda, about what was it that drew you to Baudelaire's poetry in the first place? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very fun personal story. Um, we, we had the collection at home a friend of mine was reading it because she borrowed it from the school's library and we somehow dared each other to read it and well i, I was something like 13 then and i was not that much into poetry i, I liked learning poems by heart but there was something fascinating in in some of baudelaire's poems so i guess at first i was attracted to their simplicity they're usually rather short. So it, it, it sounds a bit odd saying that at 35, but I was 13 then and I liked short poems. But um, so th there was this first encounter. But later, I realized how many authors were deeply influenced by Baudelaire's poems. So there is, th there are the ones I mentioned, but there is Barbet Aurevi, whom I doted on as a 16, well, 15, 17 year old. So I discovered how many different works of art I could get access to through Baudelaire. And when I went to France, I, I had a, a fascination for 19th century Paris. I wanted to visit everything to walk in Baudelaire's footsteps. And uh, I was working on late 19th century symbolist literature, which is, of course, heavily indebted to Baudelaire. So in a way, since this encounter at 13, he's always been in the picture of my readings. And uh, I later found all his connections with 19th century English and American poetry. And that too was a reason for me to be interested in his work as a translator, not just as an author or an art critic, but also as someone who's able to transpose things from one cultural field to the other. So all of that drew me to Baudelaire, but uh, I say another huge reason for that was all the um, the paintings, all the art that Les Fleurs du Mal inspired, 
if you have a have the chance to have a look at Gustave Moreau. Uh, Gustave Moreau is a symbolist painter of the third quarter of the 19th century, uh, second, well, late 19th century, who was often used as an illustration of what Baudelaire could be in painting. And the first collection of uh, Les Fleurs du Mal that I, well, the first copy I bought for myself was illustrated with a painting by Gustave Moreau, a young woman holding Orpheus's head. So there was, uh, and, and the music, of course, because I was also into Mylène Farmer and the whole uh, 1980s pop rock wave. And they were singing covers of Baudelaire. So he, it's not really why I was interested in him. It's really him who's been following me everywhere. Um, there's a question here that moves from your biography to Baudelaire's. And the question from Marie-Sophie is, were there life events in Baudelaire's life that inspired such a rich exploration of pain? So first, the death of his father. Uh, I'd say that would be the founding event in uh, Baudelaire's personal myth. His father, François Baudelaire, was a priest who uh, left priesthood during the revolution, like so many other priests did at that time. He married his mother uh, when, so uh, François Baudelaire married Baudelaire's mother while she was 34 years younger than he was. She was 17 then. And then he died while his wife was still very young. So Baudelaire's mother remarried with the General Opique, who embodied everything Baudelaire hated, this sort of um, bourgeoisie that would use very important ideas to achieve financial or social success. So that's something that Baudelaire despised. And um, Le General Opique was keeping a weather eye on Baudelaire's behavior. And Baudelaire, as soon as he got his independence started. Well, he went on a long trip to La Réunion, which was too very influential in his exoticism, his fascination with otherworldliness, places far away, far removed, where everything is bright and beautiful. But um, that's the moment when Baudelaire's family started being very worried about how much Baudelaire was spending, because Baudelaire was a young dandy wanting to collect art and to have beautiful clothes. And uh, so they put him under financial custody. I think that would be the equivalent English law term. So he spent all his life struggling with the debts he had and with the fact that he spent most of his heirloom. And uh, there was also his relationship with Jeanne Duval, this uh, black or somber skinned lady who uh, who's often seen, well, in some of Baudelaire's poetry, but uh, she would be his dark muse, so to speak. But I, I think there's a bit too much fuss made around Jeanne Duval, but uh, she too would be an interesting figure in terms of inspiration. But I think the most striking event for me, which I only learned about quite late in my studying of Baudelaire, was how his health quickly deteriorated. So he had to go to Belgium in order to escape his debtors and to make some money there giving lectures. And while he was visiting the uh, church of Saint-Roch, he, he, he fell as though struck by lightning at the entrance of the church. I think it was either on Christmas Eve or sometime near Christmas. So 
he would appear, like Verlaine said, like a poet Modi, someone whose life bears this dark tint of destiny. But at the same time, when you read his private papers, and that too is a very interesting moment, uh, well, a very interesting element in Baudelaire's studies, his personal papers are loaded with references to prayer, to uh, going back to a proper organized lifestyle and to fighting his procrastination demon. So if anyone wants uh, to see someone struggling against procrastination, Baudelaire did it and he fought the hard fight. And at least we got these poems that he managed to write. But I'd say his entire life is worthy of uh, writing a novel. So um, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a biography of Baudelaire. Bernard-Henri Lévy wrote something about the last days of Charles Baudelaire. But I think one of the most moving accounts is what the photographer Nadar did, giving a picture of uh, Baudelaire as le poète vierge, the virgin poet. So it went against all these ideas that Baudelaire was uh, depraved, uh, decadent, unreliable man who just pretended to be an artist. And uh, at the uh, 1868 publication of his poems, so after his death, also included some fragments of his personal papers, which allowed people to understand better the complexity of this writer who could curse God in his poems and write prayers in his private papers. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Dowder. There are a number of questions about Baudelaire's precedents and influences. You might say his own uh, formation in some sense. I'll give you uh, two questions here. One is about theological uh, formation. Uh, Diwo asks that, he says, God he or she, I'm sorry, I don't know. God as, quote, dark radiance, end quote, is not a new thing. Maximus the Confessor, as commented by Hans Urs von Balthasar, has pointed this out way before Baudelaire. Was Baudelaire informed by the patristic or any Catholic theology? And I'll just add to that, there are a number of questions asking whether Baudelaire was influenced by Dante or by what earlier poetic or literary uh, form. So perhaps you can take both of those however you like. Yes, of course. So about the patristic influence, uh, Baudelaire was not a theologian himself, but his interest in Pascal shows that he would at least have heard of patristic elements through Pascal's writings. So uh, Pascal uses uh, St. Augustine to stand against the accusations, like against Jansenism, to show that what is labelled as Jansenism is just an intense form of Augustinianism. And um, his exposure to the liturgy would have been extremely influential for his writings. So although he would not have been, well, an intense reader of the Church Fathers, he was familiar enough with the ritual of the Mass, with uh, the readings in the divine office to know some patristics. So through Pascal, he would have had this idea of God as an absence. So God as this vacuum, this void that one yearns to fill. And uh, Hans van Balthazar comments on that too. Um, but I think Baudelaire's influence would mainly have been Pascal on that. As far as poetry is concerned, yes, Baudelaire was a huge admirer of Dante with this idea of life as being this crossing of hell and the purgatory towards heaven. 
and uh, he was also an admirer of Lord Byron, which is a very interesting element to understand Baudelaire's conflictual relation to Romanticism. He would loathe the sort of soapy, sobby Romanticism, but would admire the way Byron creates these characters that are set aside and fight against fate while still knowing that they won't make it. So that would be the typical Byronic hero, Manfred or Kay in, in one of um, Byron's later poems. So Baudelaire considered that Byron was the greatest of all poets. And as far as French poetry is concerned, he was a keen reader of the uh, 16th century Renaissance writers, which can be seen through the way he uses some older forms like the blason describing a part of the whole body to give an idea of the society, but also this idea of finitude that he uh, borrows also from Ronsard, who wrote well, this uh, uh, relatively famous poem about, well, you, you the, the rose has flowered today and it shall be faded by the evening and you shall be like this rose, except that when Baudelaire writes that, he compares the lady he's talking to, to a decaying carcass. So it's a sort of intense take on the Renaissance understanding of finitude. Thank you so much. There's a, uh, the next question is about Baudelaire and original sin. Uh, you spoke, uh, Anand says, about Baudelaire's renown as an art critic. Did his personal philosophies and strong views about original sin influence his critical opinions? In a way, yes. And it's a very interesting question because it leads us to look at the connections between shape and, uh, and phrasing. So the shape as you'd have it in pictorial art and phrasing as you'd have it in a poem. So for Baudelaire, le beau est toujours bizarre, beauty is always strange, beauty is always odd. So I'd say his neoplatonic idea would lead him to think that perfection is unattainable. So the neoclassical impulse to draw perfect lines, have the perfect fading colors and all that, he would have seen that as mock, something that is just pretending to be what it is not. While on the contrary, art that grapples with the um, accidental shapes, with what, what does not match the ideal perfection, is something that would interest him because it would be in a way more real. So that would be the reason why he prefers Delacroix to Ingres. So Delacroix is famous for these Orientalist paintings, but mainly for these outbursts of color. So there's usually this distinction between painters of the line and painters of the color, and Delacroix would definitely be on the color side. It's just about these vivid um, impressions of color that although Delacroix uses it in a romantic way will be essential later for the Impressionists. So uh, Baudelaire was one of the defenders of Manet, the uh, pre-Impressionist painter, who uses these long streaks of colour and Baudelaire also admired Courbet. So in the painters he admired, either in terms of lines or in terms of themes, there was this idea of connection with reality. As the Baudelaire's understanding of original sin made him too sensitive to the fact that nothing here is perfect, that there are 
some forms of beauty that are strange that do not match this sort of uh, ideal well imitation of the ideal beauty but this can still be interesting and fascinating so that would go back to his main idea that beauty has to have some sort of oddity in it to be truly beautiful you mentioned Delacroix. I was thinking of the painting of uh, Jacob wrestling the angel in Saint-Sulpice, uh, which I, I suppose Baudelaire must have known. I think that he yes. died after Delacroix. But maybe that's, a, that's an image to leave with us. For those of you who don't know the painting, you can, you can look it up by Eugène Delacroix, the, uh, the painting in the church in Paris of uh, uh, Saint-Sulpice, where he is, Jacob is wrestling the angel. And in a way, really, that's such an such an image of Baudelaire himself, I suppose, of the the wrestling with the pain and the the demand that there be um, it not be simply loss. Yes, well, it's it's a wrestling against God Himself, and I think it, it's something that his time didn't quite understand that the section Revolte in Les Fleurs du Mal is not just meant to shock the bourgeoisie, but that there was something theological at stake there, which is that. Fighting against God is still a way of holding God. It's still a way of clutching, having one's hands over the unattainable. So there is a uh, rather astonishing litanie de Satan, litanies of Satan, literally, where Baudelaire writes a prayer to Satan. So the litany. The, the echo of the litany is uh, Satan prend pitié de ma longue misère, or Satan have mercy on my long misery. So it's, it's just the Kyrie eleison, but it's Kyrie uh, diabolon. And it's, well, of course, it's unpalatable to someone who would not want to face the problem of evil, but to someone who knew something about physical, psychological, spiritual evil, this idea of looking at evil face to face and addressing a prayer well wherever it may land just so that something could happen is uh, is something that people quite quite well didn't understand in his time and uh one of the objections to Baudelaire's Christianity is that it's often said there is no room for redemption in him he would address the presence of evil quite clearly. He would address the presence, uh, well, the absence of providence in a very explicit way, but at no point he would distinguish Christ as a redeeming figure. And I guess the poems we've seen today show that there might be other ways to bring God in than mentioning God or Jesus explicitly. So it's uh, one of the reasons why uh, Charles Dubos defined Baudelaire as poeta christianissimus, extremely Christian poet, which is to say that even though his phrasing could be at times very shocking, it's only shocking because the realities he addresses are the realities of the doctrine of original sin, that we are burdened and entrapped in something we cannot escape, save by grace. I want to pick up on what you've just said here, because it does seem to me closely related to a theme you brought out earlier uh, in your lecture about the relation to Victor Hugo and uh, the what you portrayed as a pretty profound disagreement, I take it, uh, if I've understood you correctly, Marie, uh, that Baudelaire uh, was... Uh, uh, 
in profound disagreement with what he detected in, in Hugo as a kind of uh, uh, abstraction, a kind of a, a, almost a utopian ideal, the sense of humanity as, an, sort of an, as an abstract noun uh, rather than, you know, the human being in uh, his or her uh, irreducible particularity. And this seems to me very closely related to the whole question of whether there is a redemption in the poetry itself, uh, because it, uh, that question can't be answered apart from a, a confrontation with the, not only the logic of the poems, but uh, of the, the sound of the poems. And uh, it does seem to me uh, uh, that the, the, the extraordinary beauty with which these descriptions of interventions, uh, let's say the description of the woman in A, A Une Passante, that just that sense of uh, the lightning flash, un éclair, puis la nuit, fugitive beauté, that sense of the, the sudden uh, flashing in, but which is not merely a moment that is lost, but a moment that changes uh, the perception of the observer, uh, so that the whole poem is a kind of attestation to the way in which that insight has been taken on and and uh, digested by the observer, and thus by us as the listener. And and thinking of the in Recueillement, uh, the uh, just these utterly beautiful lines about the setting, sans le soleil moribond, sans dormir sous une arche, and that final line, entend ma chair, entend la douce nuit qui marche. It's such a it's such powerful language, and and so. So what, what I take it, what I'm trying to suggest here is that the, the beauty of the language which describes these encounters, even though, or maybe because they are encounters of loss, is itself a redeeming of those very encounters of loss. Uh, does that sound right to you, or am I, am I forcing a, a, a redemptive logic on a poem that is ultimately tragic? I, I would never blame you for that. <laughs> but, um... What you're saying echoes Pascal's idea of you wouldn't be looking for me if you hadn't found me. So our feeling of grief and loss is something that in and of itself gives a hint to the presence of something. So And, and it was a, something that the Neoplatonists, of course, admired a lot in Plato, decided that, that there would be something better, but that was also reversed narratively because now we are in a fallen world and this thing, well, we can never put our hands on it unless we curse it and insult it so much so that it would be forced to incarnate as Baudelaire does in Revolt. But in these poems, as you said, it's a fleeting instant that will never be found again. So it's as though there was an anamorphosis. So uh, the anamorphosis is this painting process where you would only see the real image if you're set at a certain angle. And if you just step one step further, you can't see it anymore. So that's what is happening in Aune Passante. You just have a tiny glimpse at that precise second, and then it's lost. Sometimes the feeling of loss can be a good temporal reminder that we are aiming and called for something higher and deeper. So in that way, Baudelaire would definitely be the, the heir of Pascal with this idea that uh, the knowledge of a loss is as essential to the, the faith experience as the certitude of redemption. They both work together in a way. 
Yes, and it, that's so beautifully said, Marie. And it's as though the to, to return to Jacob wrestling the angel. It's as though one honors the finite precisely by um, by the attending to it, and in the and that the loss precisely by attending to the law the, the the loss or the experience of finitude, rather than than let's say letting it slip by. Uh, or pretending it didn't exist, or by uh, you know simply moving on to the next thing, is precisely to honor the substantiality of the of the finite itself, and uh, that seems to me very powerful in these poems. Um, uh, someone is, uh, wants to ask you, uh, Marie uh, Cheryl asks particularly about these two poems. She wants to know why do you imagine these poems were excised? from the censored version of Fleur du Mal? What were the societal or political attitudes of his time such that these works were deemed inappropriate? Right, yes, I, I'm sorry, I should have phrased that a bit more clearly. These were added to the republication. So Les Fleurs du Mal was censored. Six poems were condemned in 1857 for outreach to public morality. And it was republished in 1861 with Une Passante as an addition. And then later, posthumously in 1868, there was the complete collection minus the six censored poems with Recueillement. So these are in a way added as, as things were going on. But um, the, uh, the expert poems that were censored only reappeared in the middle of 20th century. So they're a bit racy i'd say but uh but in well if you ever have a chance to listen to baudelaire by damien says it's the setting of one of baudelaire's most scandalous poems but in such a way that it clearly shows that this poem is not just a mere excuse for lesbian pornography but that there is a struggle against physicality a struggle against the uh, idea of being entrapped in a body too. So um, Baudelaire uses scandalous themes to express things that are experienced by any one of us. He pushes it to the extreme, but any of us would know this problem of just being in a body in a certain time. And the reason why Recueillement is so fascinating is that one has the sense that finally things come to some sort of peace. So the poem was written in 1861. It's as though there was some evolution between the late 50s and the early 60s in Baudelaire's writing, so much so that at this point, he could write about the setting sun as a moment of accepting the end of things rather than struggling with the fact that we have a body and this body is going to die. Well, there's a question here, uh, you might say, about the challenges of recoignement in each of our lives. Uh, James asks or writes, I have before me a beautiful copy of The Flowers of Evil, a special edition from the Easton Press. I want to take the time to encounter this book. However, I find myself consistently saying later when considering taking the time to encounter this or any other great literary work, as small responsibilities seem to demand all my attention. What frame of mind can escape this trap, which leads to a hollowed out life? And is such a frame of mind an act of rebellion, even political rebellion today? I definitely think reading poetry nowadays is an act of rebellion because, so 
full disclosure, I don't read much poetry. I'm more of a novel person, but reading a poem is a sort of pact. There's an agreement between you and the author that you're going to stay in this room and the Italian for well, stanza is literally a room. You stay within the poem. You don't read a poem scrolling down or rushing through it as we'd read a Twitter feed. And you don't read a poem rushing to its next action like you'd read a novel. I'd say the best way to understand and appreciate a poem is maybe to learn it by heart first. So the more you ruminate it, the more it that there's a dialogue that is created between your life, your personal experience and the poem. So each reader in a way recreates the poem because each reading brings to it something that no one else has lived before, which is why reading poetry is an act of rebellion. You step out of a standardized world who wants to force ideas, opinions and tastes on you to read a few words put together and you're the one deciding first, if you want to read it or not, you're totally allowed to read through a poem and think, well, maybe not this one, not right now, and look for another one. And then there's an encounter between you and the poem of that evening or the poem of that day. And you spend as much time as you want reading that. And it's there's something extremely intimate to encountering a poem, meeting a poem. And then you learn it by heart and you can share it and recite it anywhere, anytime. And I think there's something beautiful in carrying poems with you. So. The dark secret reason why I chose these two poems is that I know them by heart and uh, they would just impress. Well, I can't see a sunset without thinking of recueillement. And in a way, any poem you learn will create an enhancing filter on your reality that is much better than any sort of Instagram filter because you'd have all these sounding words, all these uh, the lifting weight of beauty with you when you look at the world. So make the time. It's not, it's not a sin not to read poetry, but uh, if you can find 10 minutes a day to read a poem, that's already quite something. And don't be worried that you have put it off for so long. The, the best moment to start is now. And if you've missed now, the best moment to start is a second after. And there's always a good moment for a poem. So uh, don't be too harsh on yourself. I, I've just started reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time. And I was blaming myself that I spent so many years of my life not having read The Lord of the Rings. But each each book happens in its own time. I can't think of a better note on which to conclude as much as I would love to extend this uh, for another hour or more, Marie. I can't think of a better note to conclude than that a gentle note of encouragement uh, to recoillement, to the to withdrawing into the inward space uh, to read and to think. Um, your lecture today has been a kind of act of redemption, I think, uh, even as it's been elucidating the nature of that redemption itself. Uh, I just don't think there's anything deeper than to show how out of our encounter with finitude, uh, a consciousness that uh, redeems and heals can emerge. And you've shown us that so beautifully and sensitively in uh, Baudelaire today. I know I am speaking for our whole audience uh, uh, present and uh, the future audience of this lecture too, when I give you our profound thanks. Thank you so very much for today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, all the participants, for your brilliant questions. Really, I, I, I'm extremely grateful for this moment we've shared together. Thank you very much.
We look forward to having you back soon, Dr. Dowda. Thank you again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ralston College Podcast. Today's guest was Dr. Marie Kalthar Dowda, a scholar, humanist, and lover of the arts. Her splendid lecture and erudite answers remind us not only of poetry's power, but also of the importance of careful erudite readers of verse. I hope Dr. Dowda's lecture has given you both insight into the poetry of Baudelaire and into the nature and necessity of poetry itself. At Ralston College, we're always working to share the work of poets like Baudelaire and scholars like Dr. Dowda with our many audiences. And speaking of poetry, we're about to launch a new online course on the American poet Robert Frost, taught by the distinguished writer and teacher, Professor Jay Perini. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter, and we'll be sure to let you know about that course and other events like the lecture you heard today. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.